Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Ed Tricker. He is the Chief Investment Officer of Quantitative Strategies at Graham Capital Management. This conversation today covers the underpinnings of a successful research process within a quantitative business. We discuss the desired culture that makes up a quantitative team, the innovation of ideas within a highly competitive environment that ensures academic robustness and also positive returns. We cover some of the fallacies around machine learning and its challenge with transparency. And finally, we discuss the rise in volatility, the changing ecology of the market structure and the role of diversification and convexity in portfolios. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I wanted to maybe, Ed, kick off with a discussion around how do you think about your research process? You know, as you're building a research process within Graham Capital, you know, what are the, the key underpinnings that you think about um, as, as you build up uh, a process to implement? Sure. So, look, I think to, to be successful, our research, first and foremost, it needs to be innovative, right? We, we need to develop new ideas and a constant stream of new ideas is required but we have to balance that with a need for robustness. We need to weed out the ideas that are likely to fail. And we definitely need to do that before they reach an investment portfolio, but we want to do that as soon as possible in our process. And you know, I think innovation in particular is interesting. And I say this as a, you know, as a scientist and a, and a quant person, because innovation really, it's all about people and culture. You now I have a very, very basic and unapologetically cheesy philosophy when it comes to innovation. And that's that we need to create an environment where people are safe, but ideas aren't. So people need to feel safe to be able to challenge the status quo. They should not think there's a repercussion for them putting their hand up and saying, hey, I I don't think this is a good idea, but they need to recognize that whatever idea it is that they come up with isn't safe either. And it's going to be robustly criticized. It's it's not a criticism of them, it's just part of our vetting of ideas. So that sort of psychological safety, as I where, where people are able to, to challenge things, but they have to recognize that every idea is itself going to be challenged in turn is very, very important. And, and that kind of gets into that idea of, of robustness, that we need to have a very rigorous application of a transparent and a repeatable process. And to that, we look to academia. You know, my background was in academia. Many of the people that I employ are academics by by training. They're very used to this idea of sharing ideas openly, transparently, letting other people take them, go away, replicating them, making sure mistakes haven't been made, maybe giving the benefit of their additional experience or their diversifying expertise. Ultimately, we find that collaboration is the other very important part of what we do. Multiple eyes mean more opportunities to ask difficult questions, spot errors, et cetera. You know, a big believer that good research doesn't happen by one person in isolation. It's interesting. You, you, know, you, you referred to this safe space almost that your ideas can be shot down. And we're not in a great environment around sometimes thinking about diversity and, and bringing ideas you know, is it because you're applying it to the market that it allows for more of this competitive nature as people really look to the underlying um, problems? 
you know, I think not everybody finds it easy, right? For some people, if it's an idea that they've personally been in, you know, very emotionally invested in, and they've they've put their heart and soul into it for the last couple of months, and they stand up in a room surrounded by their peers, and they make their presentation, and everyone says, this could have been done differently. Here's how I'd improve it. Here are the mistakes you've made. That That's tough, for sure. At the end of the day, though, that is a necessary part of what we do. Now, you have to hope that that critique is delivered in a respectful way. I think for people to be successful at Graham, they need to be able to both give and receive criticism well. It's not always an easy thing. It's something that can be learned. I said, I think the first part is recognizing that people, they're not criticizing you or the effort that you've put in. Just because they think your idea is no good, it doesn't mean they think you're a bad person who doesn't work hard. This is just part and parcel of that peer review process. And I will say one advantage we have over academic peer review is ours isn't anonymous. So you can't just be this anonymous criticizer of other people's work. You do have to say it to their face. And, and that means that you have to really think about what it is that you're saying, because at some point, you know, they're going to get the opportunity to criticize your work as well. So it, it can be difficult. And it's something that you do have to actively manage because you have different personalities involved. But it's something that we find so valuable that, frankly, if there's someone who can't coexist within that environment, that they're not right for our organization. I'm curious around the types of people that you that you hire, right? Because I think a lot of the the thinking around quant people are all from the same, maybe a physics background or astrophysics. How do you maybe blend other types of thinking um, as part of uh, you know the team and sharing ideas? Is, is there are there people that maybe aren't traditional finance people that that you bring in? How do you think about that makeup? Absolutely. So I very rarely look for people who have got direct academic experience in finance. The only one sort of common thread I look for really is that people who've worked with data in some way. Now, whether they've done that in finance, in physics, in statistics, in brain surgery, in aeronautical engineering, whatever it may be, it's that ability to work with data and to have a good feel for data is what's important. Beyond that, you do really want to try and keep a very diverse range of people. Now, look, these are these are people that tend to have a PhD in a science subject. It's a relatively small slice of society as a whole. But within that, you do want to make sure you don't only end up with a bunch of astrophysicists that have all learned more or less the same stuff at more or less the same universities. You want people who have complementary skill sets, who can challenge each other and the way I sort of think about it is at the end of the day, you don't want people's education to stop when they join Graham Capital Management, right? I think one of the privileges of this job is I get every day to work with people who are much better at stuff than I am. And I learn from them and I become a better, well-rounded individual as a result. So having people that know stuff that I don't know, who are experts in things that I'm not an expert in, it makes me better. I like to hope I can impart a similar degree of knowledge to them as well. I think it, it, it does help, you know, that rising tide lifts all boats. So having complementary skills is certainly very important. So we, we try and cast a pretty wide net when it comes to finding talent. And how do you think about maybe encapsulating some of the behavioral aspects that we're seeing in markets? Because ultimately you're as a, you know, using a quantitative process, you're trying to um, break down what the market's doing uh, and sentiment plays a very large part of it. How do you think about quantifying maybe sentiment? Um, you know, and do you look at behavioral uh, researchers? We do, but I'd, I'd actually extend it a bit more broadly, right? That I think if all you have is very, very 
quantity people, they're very good at solving a well-defined, clearly articulated problem. But that's quite easy. That's just math. Math is actually quite straightforward. You can always find someone to solve that math problem for you. What's harder sometimes is clearly specifying what the problem is. Sometimes that's actually harder than solving it. And that's where you need people who really understand the world at large and understand some of the, the nuances of people or markets or whatever it may be, because those are people that can help try and codify what it is we're trying to do. Then we can go on to solve it. But sometimes that problem specification is more of the obstacle than, than solving it. I mean, often the solving it is just the, the sums get bigger and more complicated, but that's something that we can we can handle. So the very good people are ones that are able to link a sort of mathematical solution to a real world problem. Mm -hmm. Look, we've seen a lot of, of work being done in machine learning, um, even people talking about AI as a way to maybe rationalize alongside how humans think. How do you think about machine learning being able to capture um, what the underlying market is, is saying and the underlying participants? So I think, I think machine learning tools, they can be, and I emphasize can be, they can be very powerful and they're very good at certain things. They're a lot less good at others. Um, you know, my, my background is in machine learning and it, it's been a while, but it's been nice that finally, finally my PhD was useful for something that wasn't the case for the first 10 or 15 years as with most, most academic theses, but finally it's becoming relevant. And I'm a little more skeptical of some of these, these techniques than many others, but they definitely have, in finance, in our world, they, they have some utility. They're, they're very good when the obstacle is scale. So you take something like fraud detection, where even if you employ hundreds of people, they can't check every single credit card transaction to see if it's good or bad. Well, a computer can. So it's very good at sort of leveraging its scalability. Um, loan origination is another area where machine learning has been very successful because the task isn't that complicated. It's just it's the scalability issue again. I think when the problems become more nuanced, that's when it becomes a little more challenging. And I have, I guess, two areas of concern that I always ask my research team to address. The first is transparency. I'm a big proponent of transparency. I think people can't make a well-informed portfolio allocation decision if they don't know what it is that this thing is trying to do, if they don't have an expectation of how it's going to perform in certain conditions, et cetera. And unfortunately, a lot of these machine learning algorithms, they really are a black box. It's very difficult, in some cases impossible, to determine exactly what the decision-making process is. And therefore, it's difficult to extrapolate forward as to how something is going to behave in the future. The other slightly more pragmatic side of things is that for all their sort of complexity, they haven't actually worked that well. Um, machine learning does great when it has tons of data to work with. We in this industry actually don't have that much data. We, we see a data set that has thousands of rows and we think, wow, we've got, we've got a big data set. That's not big. It's not the millions, the billions of entries that they see in other fields. You know, Facial recognition, you can have hundreds of millions of faces to which to learn from, whereas how many economic data points do we have access to? Or even you know, if you want to go further, we maybe have a couple of million things, but it, it's not lots and lots. And, the other issue is the nature of our data tends to be temporal, right? The, the order in which it, it, it happens is very, very important. 
machine learning doesn't have so many advantages here. There's actually a really interesting prediction competition that just concluded this year. It's called the M4 um, competition. And the goal was to predict time series data. And machine learning didn't really do significantly better than some techniques that have been around for longer than I have. These things that are more tried and tested, they're actually surprisingly robust. You know, there is some glimmers of hope. Interestingly, in that competition, techniques that blended some of these traditional approaches with a judicious application of a machine learning technique where appropriate, they actually did pretty good. But the sort of blind, let's just use machine learning because it sounds cool approaches, they, they didn't work so well. So I think when used carefully and by people that have good domain knowledge, there is, you know, there are some advantages. They're really good at same modeling nonlinear relationships, which is really important in our world. But we shouldn't treat them as a, as a silver bullet that can solve every problem that we face. Well, the other thing that comes up when you think about machine learning is that the markets aren't just a closed system. It's effectively an ecology. And as people participate and they read things, they also um, are influencing the market as well. So, you know, maybe with, with facial recognition, you can have a lot of data and, and get some clear outcomes with markets as people uh, implement their ideas. They've taken the data, they implement the ideas. They're also affecting the system as well. So that makes it also challenging. There is. There's a non-stationarity problem, right? That the data from 20 years ago, we get more data by looking back in time and the data from 20 years ago doesn't, I mean, it's helpful, but I don't trust it half as much as I do data from, from two years ago. I mean, there is some advantage to machine learning in that context and it can adapt, right? It can learn. I mean, machine learning is, what is it? It's that machine learns by its experiences and changes its behavior. So I guess in, in theory, some of these challenges are surmountable. With sufficient data, they probably can evolve as, as conditions change. But the, the truth is we just don't have enough information to be able to prime these machines to uh, to make some of the good decisions. And that's not to say, as I said, I, I don't want to be a complete downer on them. They're, they're very good for some things, but I do worry a little bit when you see people just applying them at will. I get it. It sounds cool, right? Um, you know, when I finished my, my PhD, no one knew what this was, whereas now, you know, people were beating down the door of recent graduates in machine learning, which makes me sound a bit bitter, but hey, there you go. It is what it is. But I think using it carefully is, is key. So maybe let's think about the, what what systematic trading also means to you. How much does that, you know, when people think about it, they usually think about trend following. How much of that is the truth versus maybe trying to identify underlying signals to be able to trade? Look, I, I think trend is trend is certainly a good strategy, right? It's been around a long time. It's got a proven track record. It's relatively transparent. It has high capacity. It has no correlation to any of the things that it, it trades. It has a lot of very positive attributes to it, but it's just one way of predicting where markets are going to go tomorrow. I mean, the assumption behind trend following is that what's gone up recently is likely to continue going up tomorrow. And similarly, stuff that's gone down recently is likely to continue going down. Ultimately, you've expressed some functional relationship in what the market's done with what it's likely to do tomorrow. But that's not the only way of forming that functional relationship. There are lots of different ways you can try and predict where markets are going to go. You could, instead of thinking that markets are going to trend, you could say, well, maybe on very short-term time horizons or very long-term time horizons, rather than trending, markets tend to revert. So they, they tend to exhibit some sort of mean reversion property. That's a similar way of predicting markets. You can go, a different way entirely, which is to say, you know, I'm actually not going to use price or anything like that. I'm actually going to use 
maybe some of the behavioral data that you mentioned or some macroeconomic data, or I'm going to use a weather forecast to try and predict where a commodity is going to go. At the end of the day, we've got data on the one hand, we've got future market returns on the other, and we're trying to form a relationship between the two. And hopefully that relationship is stable, it's robust, it's stationary, it has all of those good statistical properties. But exactly how we do it is very dependent on the data that we have at our disposal and the objective that we're trying to accomplish. So as you drill down to thinking about constructing a portfolio, what are the sort of things or the signals particularly that you're looking for in terms of trade ideas to put on? You know, and and also Diversification, we always talk about it from, you know, within a portfolio level. How do you then make sure the portfolio is diverse in terms of its signaling as well and, and what it wants to implement or what it actually implements? Got it. So there's a lot to unpack there. So I guess, you know, first and foremost, I think a good portfolio starts out w- with a very clear objective of what it is that people are trying to do, right? If someone comes to me and says, Ed, build me a portfolio that's going to make money. How on earth do I begin to solve that problem. Whereas if they come to me and say, I would like you to build me a portfolio that has the following level of volatility and its maximum drawdown is this, and I'd like its average annual return to be that, I can start to then combine pieces together to achieve that objective. And I'm I'm a big proponent in that sort of top-down approach to building a portfolio where you start out with the idea and then you choose the necessary building blocks in order to accomplish it. I think too often people start the other way, right? They go bottom up, that they have some stuff lying around and they're like, oh, right, how can I how can I put this together into a portfolio? And they try something and that doesn't work, we'll leave it out. They try something else and they lose sight of what that objective is. I think all portfolio decisions should be made through the prism of ultimately what it is you're, you're trying to accomplish. You know, within that, you know, you mentioned diversification. That is a core part of nearly every good portfolio. I mean, I know there's a sort of a technical aspect to diversification, right? It what it allows you to reduce risk while maintaining return. And that's what run, you know, Markowitz's Nobel Prize. I think that's great. Um, I see it as slightly more pragmatic. To me, it's an insurance against being wrong. I think we're in a business that's just riddled with hubris, right? Both managers and investors vastly overestimate their ability to pick the winner. They have far too much confidence in their predictive properties. Therefore, resultant portfolios tend to be more concentrated than they should because this thing looks so much better than everything else. It gets overweighted in the portfolio. And then lo and behold, reality catches up with you. It doesn't do quite so well. Portfolios don't tend to work out quite as people expect. So that, that diverse portfolio is, is sort of a an insurance against an overspecification of a, of a problem. It's insurance about being wrong, it's a recognition we're maybe not that perfect and we have a pretty good idea of where things are going to go, but we're kidding ourselves if we think we can refine it down to the sort of atomic level where we can really say this thing is twice, three times as good as something else. So I I see portfolio diversification as a very important step in achieving that objective because very rarely do people specify that objective so clearly that they know exactly what they want. And if you don't know, people don't know exactly what they want, you can't build something that's very, very, sort of concentrated and and diversification helps cover a wider range of portfolio outcomes. Now, in terms of how you get diversification, I guess there are basically two ways of doing it. One, you can trade different things. So you can not just trade stocks and you can trade bonds and commodities and fixed income and any, any number of different things. Or you can 
take the same things and trade them differently. So you can have different strategies that trade things in different ways. So you could have a fast strategy and a slow strategy or a directional strategy and a market neutral strategy or a strategy that looks at prices and a strategy that doesn't look at prices. So you can get diversification that way. Um, in general, I'm more of a proponent of diversification by design rather than by accident, right? So some things have diversified one another. Um, bonds are a good example, right? Bonds and stocks have diversified each other really nicely for the last 20 years. Difficult to say why that has been the case and difficult to say if it's going to continue into the future. In contrast, when I build a systematic strategy, I have the luxury of being able to hardwire that diversifying property into the different components. So I know because one is convergent and the other is divergent, that they're going to look different into the future. They have to, they're following rules that necessarily mean they're going to look different. So this diversification by design is, is helpful. It allows you to have a more consistent diversification in the future. Whereas if you're relying on the passive sort of obtaining of diversification, that can be, that can be a lot more difficult. What are your thoughts around the, the issue of convexity, particularly in this low yield environment? We're seeing you know, some quite high spikes in, in particular assets, um, uh, given, given where low interest rates are. You know, how does convexity play into your quantitative strategies? So I, I both love and hate the phrase convexity when applied to quantitative strategies. I, I think, look, it has a very technical meaning, right? That the payoff will be nonlinear. So if, if stuff goes up a lot, you'll make a, a whole bunch of money. And if stuff goes down a lot, you'll make a whole bunch of money. And if stuff kind of goes sideways, you, you won't make all that much money. And that, that makes sense. Um, I don't know why people can't describe it like that, I guess, rather than just you know trying to, trying to borrow this mathematical term of convexity. I also think that quite often people aren't always, they don't treat you know, the payoff when markets are going up as much as the payoff when markets are going down. And I think that's absolutely fine, but everyone has a different utility function and not, not everyone wants a symmetric payoff, right? Some people, they buy put options because they really care about the protection. They really, really want something that's going to make them a ton of money when markets decline. They're not so worried about what happens when markets go up. And that'll look very different than a strategy like trend following, for example. It tends to be a bit more symmetric. You know, It tends to make about the same amount of money when markets go down as when markets go up, but it's not as reliable as a put option. And, you know, so I think what people are really talking about here is they're talking about conditional performance. They're saying, how does this strategy work in different market conditions? And I think this is, this is key because it sort of ties us back to our diversification comment that you sort of talk to people about diversification and they say, oh, well, I look at the correlation between different assets in the portfolio and, I see that their correlation is minus 10%, therefore they're diversifying. But that's an average. That means over time. And averages are always a very heroic way of describing the sort of complex interaction between different things. It is much more sensible to look to see, well, this diversifying thing, did it diversify when I needed it to? Like it's entirely possible that something diversified on average but when you really needed it, it looked just the same as everything else. We tend to see that with things like emerging markets, right? They, they look different most of the time. Then you go through a COVID type crisis and everything goes down at the same time. The correlations when you really wanted them were quite unfriendly. So this idea of conditional performance, how's it doing in a certain 
type of environment, it it is very important. And I think that that's the part of the convexity that is is so valuable. It's it's saying how does this strategy do at different points in time? So so that part of it I think is is helpful. To your point, it's getting more and more difficult to find. We we used to get a lot of it from bonds, right? Bonds had this sort of magical property of making money over time, which was great, while also reliably protecting you when markets went down. And you know, you look 20 years ago when the yield on the 10-year bond was 6% or whatever, and compare it to now when it's 0.6 of a percent, the reality is yields aren't high enough to either generate a compelling long-run return or they're not high enough to be able to uh, allow bonds to move up enough next time stocks take a big lurch downwards. So I think we're going to have to build strategies that actively obtain that convexity or that conditional diversification and have it sort of front and center as part of their design, rather than just sort of crossing our fingers and hoping that we're going to get it. Here's the challenge, though, because, you know, I speak to many asset owners and you and when you start to drill into their, their comfort level around lumpy returns, they, they seem to always be slow to to take them up right they they like to see a more consistent level of returns and so yes convexity is the ability to benefit of you know, quite large sharp you know changes in the market but how you know given the whole institutionalized approach to investing for a lot of these pension funds are they actually able to understand that some of these things don't pay off but then they can have a very large payoff at a later period of time how do you then think about that conversation but i, th- I think it depends on their utility right so Something that occasion has an option like payoff and that occasionally produces killer returns and the rest of the time it's kind of so so. You know, on average, it might get you to the same place as something that's a bit more slow and steady. But that the sort of utility of that will depend on your investment horizon, right? If you're someone who can invest in something and revisit it in 30 years, that's great. Um, you can maybe tolerate more choppiness. If, however, you're an underfunded pension and your liabilities are constant, then maybe you need something that's going to be more consistent and you're willing to tolerate less either downside return or maybe less overall return for that consistency. Then you start getting into the weird things like if you have a bad return early on in an investment, it compounds. It can really hit your your overall level of total wealth. So I think it 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 depends what people are trying to optimize for. And it's that's why it's so important that when people make these types of investments, they really think about that type of thing. Because if all you think about is averages, you can get there in very, very different ways and feel very differently about the path. And I think it's, it, it's helpful, at least for me, when I have these conversations, you try and ask questions like this. It's like, yes, this thing, maybe its average return is 2% higher, but its worst year is going to be 10% worse. Can you live with that? And if the answer is yes, great. If the answer is no, then we're going to have to find some different solution for you. And I don't think there's a one size fits all. So I think being flexible and, and having a conversation, listening to people is so important. You, you mentioned also in the early discussion around the challenges of, of finding some of these uh, strategies in the market. You know, how do you think about the market structure and how that's changed of late, and your ability to get the capacity to do the sort of trades that you want, and maybe even the liquidity to be able to to change your trades? Do you find it more of a challenge in the current environment? So I think of liquidity as the ability to do the trade of the size I want 
at the time I want, at the price I want. Those three things are important. And I will say that even this year, which has been a, a kind of crazy year, generally speaking, we've had no liquidity concerns at all. Um, I, I feel I could pretty comfortably double Graham's systematic business before liquidity would start keeping me up at night. You know, I think liquidity becomes a concern when you make quite an inefficient use of, of capital, right? So a directional strategy that takes outright bets has a lot more capacity than a cross-sectional bet. So placing an outright bet on the S&P, I don't have to take a very big position. Whereas if I'm taking a spread between the S&P and the Dow Jones Eurostocks, I have to use a lot of capacity to generate the same level of risk because these positions are kind of canceling each other out. Um, so things like that do enter into our thinking when we come to build a strategy is how capacity sort of efficient are they? Think, similarly, things that take big positions, you have to make bigger trades and bigger trades mean bigger cost. Um, so turnover is a consideration as well. I think capacity often comes up as well because people mistake capacity problems for survivorship bias. I don't know if you heard of the, the Sports Illustrated curse, right? So there's this idea that when an athlete appears on the front cover of Sports Illustrated, that the next year they don't tend to do so well and it's this curse of appearing on the front cover of the magazine. Until someone rightly pointed out, that's not what this is. This is just survivorship bias, right? And to appear on the front cover of Sports Illustrated, an athlete has to have done something so amazing and so atypical that we shouldn't be surprised if next year they're not quite as good as they were. This was a blip. Well, we see the similar thing with investments, right? This, this new thing comes along, it's done really well, and then it starts to attract money and it, it doesn't do so well. And everyone says, ah, look at that, it was because of capacity. And it's like, was it? Or was it just it only came to our attention because it was doing something unusually good? And then lo and behold, the inevitable regression towards the mean, independent of capacity, occurred. So I, I do think that people are often a little quick to attribute poor performance to capacity. Some of it's just the usual ups and downs that we see, but it is something that, you know, if you want to ultimately be be big and be successful, you do have to think about, and, and we, we, we do as sort of the first step of our research process. Look, if someone can come to me and build me a strategy with a sharp ratio of four on $10 million, that's really cool. It's not gonna move the needle on our $10 billion systematic business at the end of the day. So it is, it is a big part of, of how we think about making changes. Well, just just to just for the readers on the listeners, sorry at home, it's not just Sports Illustrated, but Barron's also is seen as a as a very uh, great example of uh, peak markets and peak uh, investors too. So uh, it's not just in the sports uh, phenomena. But one one of the things I wanted to talk to you you've you've touched on as well is um, maintaining a level of risk, and and that's one of the biggest challenges I, I would say over the last few years with the volatility picking up. How do you think about? Um, may, maintaining a level of volatility. I know a number of investors look at that and they've got a particular target or risk budget for different strategies. How do you think about maintaining a, a constant level of volatility um, through through time? So look, I, I think if volatility in general is going up, maintaining your level of volatility, at least it, 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 your issue is going to be more trying to reduce it rather than not hitting your volatility target. So I, I found it a little surprising that in this environment of heightened volatility, people have found it difficult to realize the upper level of volatility that, that, they, were, that they were looking for. Um, 
you know, I think you can say that, well, if the opportunity set's not there, maybe it's appropriate to reduce the overall level of risk. Um, but I'll say for, for us, we've we've not really found it difficult to keep volatility consistent. I mean, ultimately, what is the volatility in your fund a function of? It's a function of the size of the positions that you have, the volatility of the markets that you trade, and the correlation between those markets. And the first one, you should know pretty well, because they're the positions that you have. The second, volatility. Well, in the grand scheme of things that we have to measure, volatility is relatively easy. A market that's volatile tomorrow is probably going to be the volatile, it's probably going to be volatile the next day and the next day. It's a sticky thing. My people talk about volatility clustering, but they basically mean that volatility tends to hang around. And then finally, the correlation. Well, correlation is also pretty straightforward. I mean, I'm a lot more confident in the correlation between the S&P and the Nikkei than I am between whether they're going to go up or down tomorrow, right? There's structural reasons why correlation should be pretty consistent. So I feel we have the necessary information at our disposal to make good portfolio allocation choices to target volatility. I think that people haven't done it. Some of it is a function of capacity and they've run out of room. Um, I think some of it is that people are a bit slow and markets have maybe moved faster than, than they'd like. So look, if you're looking at volatility over the last five years, you didn't notice that Q1 happened yet and things like that. So I think being more dynamic and being more responsive has been helpful. I think also people haven't made it an objective. And I don't know if that's because, again, it's it wasn't communicated. Did investors make it clear that volatility was important to them at the outset? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I think if it's if it's something that people want in portfolios, they should say so. And it's it's relatively easy to, to implement. We've we've certainly of all the things that I worry about, um, targeting volatility is is very, very low on the list. All right, final question, and, and let's take it back to, to the start and where we talked about innovation and being creative. What are your inspirations or what do you do that maybe gives you a, a different edge? What, what do you enjoy that uh, helps you with thinking through markets today? So I, I, I really like to fundamentally understand how things work. And this, this applies to sort of, I think, I think everything, and it sounds obvious, but I think a lot of the time we don't really stop and think about problems. A lot of the times people have a have a solution that's looking for a problem and they try and shoehorn it in somewhere. It doesn't belong. I think there's something tremendously intellectually satisfying about really decomposing what a problem is. And it means you can often start with something very, very complicated that seems insurmountable and how are you going to tackle this? Well, if you can break it down into a dozen individual small parts, then, then you have some hope. Then you can begin to tackle them and you can start to chip away at it. It takes time. I think it, sometimes it's a it's a difficult thing to justify, right? Stopping to think about something. You Instead, you want to be seen to be busy and like, here are the 10 solutions I've come up with. Well, maybe you'd have been better off spending a month thinking about it first and coming up with one good solution rather than rather than 10 bad ones. So I do think really, and it sounds obvious, but really understanding what it is that people are trying to accomplish is tremendously important in building something that they're ultimately going to be happy with. Mm -hmm. All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Ed. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. 
All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.